it created this, I guess, I call it psychological dysmorphia. Like there were so many different versions of myself that I had to maintain in order to have this image. Because on one hand, we were told also that homosexuality is the gateway to pedophilia and bestiality. And yet here I am in the high school group as a leader in the high school group. I had to make sure that I was above reproach more than anybody Mm -hmm. there. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. This is Matthew. On today's episode of Tell Me About Your Father, I speak with George Azar, author of the forthcoming My Gay Church Days, a memoir of a closeted evangelical pastor who eventually had enough, which is due out in the Northern Hemisphere's spring of this year. In the book, George writes about his journey from childhood as the son of first-generation immigrants who found himself becoming more and more religious and conservative, even going so far as to become a pastor as a way of combating his own deep fear of being gay, and as a way of connecting with his father, a man who George describes as gentle and loving, but emotionally remote, who nonetheless George saw as one of his only refuges. In our conversation, George and I talk about how he functioned as a pastor while carrying an oppressive secret, and what eventually led to his leaving. We also talk about negotiating the challenges of attempting to connect and function with family members who hold vastly different beliefs, and how he's managed to come to terms with the distance between himself and his dad, despite still yearning for a connection. And remember, if you like this or any of our other episodes, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You just open the Apple Podcasts app on your phone or computer, look up Tell Me About Your Father, and scroll to the ratings section. It's even easier than I'm making it sound right now. If you don't feel like doing that, please send this episode to somebody you think might find it interesting. Also, please send it to someone who you think might hate it and would potentially rage against it online. That also helps us. I hope you enjoy my conversation with George Azar. You describe yourself early on in the book as a plump Middle Eastern boy who loved the Spice Girls and Power Rangers. And... You grew up attending a liberal Episcopal church with an openly gay pastor. And then you moved yourself away from that and became a more conservative Christian Republican. You wrote, my Republican values were strictly a strategic move, a means to connect with my dad on a personal level. Can you talk Mm. about that? Yeah, it stems from my inability to be able to make alliances with my peers I actually became a a social pariah at school. And so a lot of my early on traumas were propagated from this belief that I didn't belong anywhere, that I was unworthy of of anything. I was a fat kid growing up, and which is interesting is that my brother is also gay and he's older than me. And so we would take jabs at each other for, you know, he, he would take jabs at me for being fat. I would take jabs at him for being gay. And so I took on this identity and started to believe that I wasn't worthy of anything. The only form of affection really came from my grandmother and my father. And I had started staying with my grandmother from from an early age, at, staying at her house uh, when it wasn't when it wasn't school nights. But during school nights, I would be at home. My mother and I had a kind of a contentious relationship. My brother was more of a mother's boy. I was more of a dad's boy. So forming that alliance with my father was very strategic because it was the only relationship that I could see that allowed me to have some sort of reprieve from the despicableness that was my life. He was perceived to be my only protector. I had no protection from anybody else. I didn't feel like I could protect myself at all even though I did act out in certain ways to exemplify that I was fighting for my own existence. But he was my rock, if you will. 
everything that my dad did, he was more of a stoic character. He wasn't emotionally available in the ways that I needed, but in the ways that he expressed emotion, there were two ways. It was either through sports or it was through politics. And I had no interest in sports whatsoever. So politics was actually a way for me to connect with him. So we would listen to Rush Limbaugh together. What a treat. It really was. <laughs> oh my God. I know. It's so funny. When he got the purple heart, I was like, oh my gosh, really? Like, has any, yes. like, anyway. What, what services to the nation he provided? My God. <laughs> Just talking about this, the liberal Episcopal church that you went to, was your dad involved with that in any way? Yeah, he would go with me. He'd been going since, you know, my grandmother was the one who really spearheaded that. And he'd been going since he was a kid to that church and stuff. I would go to the youth group and then he would go into the main service and then we would meet up afterwards. But um, as I got older, I would go into the main services. And by that time, I had already committed my allegiance to the Republican Party as a means to to connect with my father. And so I remember when you know, we learned that the pastor was gay. And that was kind of like the first shot fired. What's interesting about what people, I guess, don't really understand in the context of secular conservatism, being gay in the church, it's easy. It's like, oh, it's a sin. But but in the secular context, especially in the 90s, it was that homosexuality was not a viable lifestyle. Right. And as I got older and started to research that, a lot of it was systemic from that generation uh, believing that homosexuality was a mental illness until the APA dis declassified it from 1971. Right. So we weren't necessarily responding from a religious perspective as much as we were responding from a conservative perspective. And then when the pastor had stepped down and the female pastor came in, not only was she, you know, a female, which also was an issue, she was a lesbian. And so it was like, absolutely not. And that's where I kind of drew the line in the sand. And my dad as well, we were just like, okay, this is too much. Um, this this is, is in contradiction to what we believe. Was it a shock that the pastor was gay? Because why would he step down if like a lesbian steps in for him? You know what I mean? Oh, he did. Sorry. He didn't step down because he was oh, gay. He was just moving on to got other it, things. I think he, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because. Yeah. So it came out that he was gay. He wasn't like gay from the beginning. To be honest, I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I do remember the day we drew the line in the sand. But I do believe we all knew he was gay. It was just like it wasn't spoken about. Like it wasn't preached at church. There wasn't any sermons on homosexuality. It was just general be good person, all of that. But I, I think as the Episcopalian church started to become more, um, I guess, divided, on the subject, it became more right. well known that he was gay and knowing where this uh, sect was actually going to split, it was going to go on the more liberal side. I think that was kind of the defining moment we right. were there. I mean, because how did that conversation with your dad go? Do you, you remember that conversation where you both decided this is not for us? What happened in that? We were standing like in, in the outside, like atrium and we're just and we were just like, nope, no more. And I think it was because the woman pastor was being instilled that day or, or was announced and such. I remember like looking at him and I think I was like, what, a middle schooler at that time. And I had the cognitive awareness, at least in my indoctrination with conservatism, that this was not OK. And he so my dad is a little bit more passive. So I think with my sternness, um, he agreed with that, too. And we just stopped going to church. And that was it. We had made that decision that this was no longer for us. I think my grandma kept attending church until she passed away. As a family unit and direct family unit, we were just like, no more. Did you get closer because of the fact that you became a Republican Christian? I mean, was your plan successful in that way? It was in the sense that I felt an emotional connection to him. So like, you know, we would, you know, also watch Fox News together. We would talk about it. And so... That in and of itself allowed for more topics of conversation with my father other than the weather. So it was like, oh, did you see this? Da, da, da. And in my mind, that brought us closer together because we were talking about more detailed things. As I started to deviate from it, not even just conservatism, just politics in general. When I started to detach from all that, we went back to just talking about the weather. And so I noticed that there was a void there that this was something special that we shared with each other that 
at that point in time, I was no longer interested in. And I tried to rekindle it when I left the church and moved back and stuff. So what about your your brother? Your brother is gay. He was out. Was he out at this point? So he ended up coming out. He was a sophomore or junior year of high school, and he was two grades above me. So when I went to freshman year, he had completely transferred out of the school that I had gone to the high school that he previously went to. He transferred out, moved in with my grandmother um, because his bullying and and ridicule was way worse than mine in middle school. But then I ended up becoming the heir of that. But he he forged his own way from early on. I think he went to church with us when we were kids and we would do like Christmas and Easter and all that. But he never resonated with the Christian doctrine at first before I became introduced to Christianity. I thought he was just doing something that that was rebellious and then when I accepted Christianity, it was something that was sinful. But then also knowing that I had those gay thoughts too, it scared the living hell out of me because I saw how he was treated, which was so funny because I ended up getting treated that way anyway. But as a kid, what I perceived was that his sexuality put a division between him and my parents. So he had to move out of the house. And so if I was to ever share that I was gay or had gay thoughts or whatever, I would have to do the same thing. And I wasn't ready to do that because I, I, there was nothing I needed more than my father's affirmation and affection. What was so strategic about that as well, looking back on it, obviously, I'd, you know, turning to Republicanism was more than just relating with my father. It was also about accepting a doctrine mm -hmm. that condemned one of the scariest thing, truths about myself, you know, so if the Republican Party was against homosexuality, then I needed to be against homosexuality. And then you add the church to it who provided the cure for homosexuality. And it was just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's interesting the way you, in your mind, decide that your parents are to blame in a way your mother is to blame for you being gay. Mm -hmm. So your dad becomes the answer. But if it's just behavioral, then you open yourself up to believe that the church can solve this behavioral issue. So how did your dad and your brother, how was that dynamic in terms of with you as well? Your brother is like openly gay. How's your dad feel about that? Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was in the 90s, the way to heal homosexuality was to go to therapy. Right. So my brother went, went to therapy for that. And I perceived that that was the ultimate division between my father and my brother because my brother wanted nothing to do with my dad but they would get in fights often meaning that my brother would yell at my dad and my dad would try to calm him down but then ultimately when he moved away that was like the final straw how i perceived it was you put me through therapy you told me i was not right therefore i want nothing to do with you so i'm moving in with grandma um, and having very limited uh, conversations with you. So fair enough, to be honest, that, that makes that, sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Where I used to condemn my brother. Now I'm like, you were a pioneer in our family. You paved the way for me to be able to come out. Did you lecture your brother about his like in quotes sin? Yeah. So when I became a Christian, I definitely shared with him that homosexuality was a sin. It was in the Bible. We grew to tolerate each other as we got older. We never grew to like each other. Um, until later on in life and until I came out and all of that, we used to get into fist fights. We stopped that. Obviously we were older, um, him moving out. Cause we used to share a bedroom, him moving out was like a blessing in disguise in that regard, because we were always fighting, you know, over the stupidest. I, I remember one time, you know, like this is so childish, but we, I grabbed like tape and I like taped off my area and I was like, you cannot come into this yeah. area, you know, yeah. like it was like that kind of like environment. Um, but yeah, as he started to embrace his, his sexuality, I started ratcheting up my homophobia. He was dating guys and all of that. And I, and I constantly would let him know, like, I don't approve. I don't approve. And he would be like, I don't care if you approve or not. Like, it's my life. So we ended up growing very much apart. I wanted nothing to do with him because he was living a life of sin and debauchery and he wanted nothing to do with me because I was a judgmental asshole, you know? You would think that me becoming a Christian would make me more loving and accepting. And if anything, it, it just ratcheted up my... Has Have you my, ever met somebody yeah, who's become a Christian, Christian and it's made them into 
a kinder person. No. No. I mean, I, you know, to be fair, I do, two of my really good friends are still Christians and they're like, no, 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 no shade there. There are plenty of Christians that are the, the most lovely people in the world. But I just, there's that saying, good people will do good things, bad people will do bad things. But if you want good people to do bad things, you give them religion. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like plenty, I, I, you know, again, I know plenty of wonderful, wonderful people who, who identify as Catholics, who are, you know, I just feel like that's never been the case. I've just never been like, oh, you found God? Great. <laughs> as an adult, oh, good, good. Something happened then? <laughs> Tell me about where this trauma began. Did your dad have a sense that you were gay? If you had this, this closeness? I know it came as a surprise when I came. It wasn't a surprise when my brother right. came out, you know, later in life. Um, but because my dad wasn't emotionally available, it was a little it was a little bit harder to read him. I'm sure he had some sort of idea. Um, you know, whether it be that I just, you know, I was young and I was struggling with it. My hormones were going, you know, awry or whatever, or I actually was gay. I'm sure he had some sort of inkling because I would come home often and talk about how I was bullied for being gay, like that being labeled as gay. It's hard to assess what my dad was, was thinking in the moment. Cause you know, I, I don't know if I wrote about it or, but I used to joke that my dad worked for the FBI because he was so secretive and he still is to this day, like still very much is emotionally just withdrawn, you know, keeps people at bay. Why do you think he is so emotionally remote? I was doing a little bit of, of digging in the family because I was curious about that myself uh, about a few years ago. So I interviewed his sister and his brother. I was talking to my uncle about it, and he's like, George, your dad used to be just like me. Like, he was just as, as gregarious, just as outgoing and stuff. And he said, you know, there was a time in his life around 12 years old that he just came home from school one day and just shut off. And that was it. Nobody knows. Like, he's never shared with anybody. I have my inclinations, but I don't feel too comfortable in sharing them just because it's his personal sure. story. But based off of what was shared with me, there's some heavy, heavy trauma there that eventually caused him to just disassociate from the world and shut down and just, you know, he, he gives me moments every now and then. I think as he's getting older, he's been giving me more, more clues here and there. But still, puzzle piece still is not there. You mean clues <laughs> as to who he is or clues as to what happened? Both. What happened and his identity just as a person. I was explaining it to my therapist. And I was just like, you know, I, I didn't know. So I started creating stories about him. But she's like, well, you know, that's very common because where there's lack of information, often what we will do is create stories about the people in our lives that brings meaning to our own lives. And that's what I did with my dad, where I was like, well, my dad, you know, was passive. He was this. I explained it that way. And that was the way that I explained how I became a homosexual because, you know, my mom was over domineering and my dad was passive or he was abusive. I didn't feel comfortable giving him the abusive title because he mm -hmm. never was. So being the passive one was kind of the way that I explained him, um, which, you know, then environmental homosexuality as believed by the evangelical church that's what explained it and as i started to get older and actually when my mother died two years ago now i learned something new i thought that they didn't have a loving relationship because we never saw them show emotion towards each other other than like a peck on the lips or holding hands you know rarely in public um but when my cousin opened up and told me about their relationship before we were born, before they got married and like this love, you know, it was like a love affair. Like they just fell in love. And I and that shocked me. And it, it brought another piece into the puzzle. I was like, oh, my dad does have ability to share those types of emotions. And so anyway, it's like a smorgasbord of all these like different clues that I get throughout the years, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, but yeah, it's still a mystery. Do you think you're going to be able to get the answers? Do you think that he wants to tell you? Yes, I do. I think uh, as I start to see him getting older, he has become a lot more open, at least in sharing, you know, the good times about his childhood. I recently learned that he lived in Los Angeles for a year pursuing an accounting degree. And I'm an account. I'm a CPA now. 
that was something I knew nothing about. And I was like, oh my God, that I lived close to that where he was and stuff. I do believe he does want to share more. I don't think he has the tools. Elizabeth, remember when we started making this podcast? Boy, do I. It was two years ago. Can you believe that? Two years. Oh, I can because we were just so focused on getting it right and learning all these programs, right, oh. to, to try to make it perfect. Mm -hmm. If only we had heard about Anchor by Spotify. It's so easy. It makes everything better because it's all in one place. Everything you need. Everything you need all in one place. Let me ask you a question, Erin. What kind of tools does Anchor have? It allows you to record and edit the podcast right from your phone or computer. Your phone? That means you could edit a podcast from anywhere, from, from the beach. From the beach, in a windstorm. In um, a windstorm. Anywhere, truly. And some people do. We use our computers. Tell me about the hosting capabilities. Oh my gosh. You could upload that thing to any of the platforms, including Apple. It sounds kind of like this is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Hell yeah, it is. And tell me something else. How much is it? It's absolutely free. What? If only we'd known that part a couple years ago. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. At what point did you decide you wanted to become a pastor? I guess you could say it was a trickle of events after I graduated from high school. I was going to go into the ministry and uh, I had applied to Biola, Azusa, got, Vanguard, got into all of them. It was way too expensive. So decided to move away and go to community college. And I had a fall away period and then got connected with the church, Bayside, uh, the church that I, I heavily uh, write about. And it was just kind of, it was incremental. Um, it, it started with first attending this church and learning their language and learning about the different people there and the different opportunities. And, you know, I was at, it went, by the time I was in community college, I had just received uh, three associate's degrees, uh, legal studies, uh, a couple others. And I was on course actually to become an accountant. At the same time, I had learned about the Bible study. And so I was just praying, God, if this is what you want me to do, make it clear that I'm supposed to be pursuing accounting. A lot of the indoctrination that led up to that point in the couple of years that I had been at that church was very much like, if you're not serving the Lord, you're destined for damnation, if you will. Right, <laughs> like, of course. It was just, <laughs> as I started to get you know more up in the leadership there, it was heavily impressed upon me specifically to at least attend the Bible college and just say, look, just you know, take a couple classes, see if you like them. I, I audited my first class, loved it. And um, I also had taken up an internship with a law firm and they were painstakingly different. Like the law firm was all about money and pursuing, you know, like the guy ended up showing me all of his estates and all of his money and all this. And at the same time, I was in the Bible college. Uh, and I think it was like only a couple of weeks I'd been in the Bible college class and I couldn't reconcile it. I was like, is this my future? You know, that I'm I'm destined to follow the ways of the world and lose my identity and my soul in this. It was a week after I had taken that internship at the law firm that I ended up calling the office uh, during a break while I was in Bible college class. And I told them, I'm sorry. I uh, decided I'm going to pursue the ministry. Thank you for the opportunity. Da, da, da. I went back into the, the classroom. And it kind of just went all, I guess, <laughs> uphill, but also downhill from there, where it became clear to the leadership that I was taking the ministry seriously. So fast forward about a year or so later, um, the, the church had seen this mass exodus because the senior pastor left to plant a church. The assistant pastor ended up taking the role. He was looking to fill these positions and, you know, they saw my zeal. They saw my commitment. And so he ended up offering me the position of the outreach pastor. And that sealed the deal for me that I was on the right path. Where are you with your sexuality at this point? 
um, personally? Very closeted. I had attended Exodus Ministries uh, shortly after joining the church. And so then about this point, everyone in the church already knew that I was someone who struggled with same-sex attraction. So just for people who don't know, Exodus International was a global Protestant evangelical organization that purported to provide conversion therapy for gay people. It was founded in the 1970s and was considered abuse by most, if not all, credible medical organizations in the United States and was eventually dissolved in 2012 with even its founder saying that it didn't work and caused harm. What was it like for you fixing yourself in, in, in ex-gay therapy? And when you left, how did you feel about it? My hatred for my sexuality started at a very young age. It was even right before puberty, I knew that I was attracted to guys. And not being raised in a religious household, it wasn't that homosexuality was a sin. It just wasn't a viable lifestyle. Right. Yes. Um, Republicanism gave me the motivation to hate it. Christianity gave me the cure. Yeah. I could turn to this God and he would deliver me from my most shameful aspect. I went through conversion therapy and the therapist told me, he's like, every time you have a gay thought, wear a rubber band around your wrist and flick it. So, you, so your brain associates pain with homosexuality. I mean, I probably had the most swollen wrist out there. The litmus test was if these thoughts diminish, then I am following the Lord. If these thoughts are being amplified, I am not following the Lord. And so that became that motivation, if you will, to stay pure mm -hmm. in the eyes of the Lord. After years, I mean, decades of that, I still to this day, I have, I'm very public about it. I have uh, sexual deformities. I don't feel my, that I'm worthy enough. I have erectile dysfunction. This isn't something that is like a heal up and move on situation. It's like, this is deeply programmed into my psyche. I've gotten a lot better, but it's not to say that I've been, quote unquote, delivered from homosexuality. It left a permanent mark for sure. I mean, yeah, like, a, of course it did. Okay, but so you're not dating and the church is concerned about its image and your image in it. And it's well known you, in quotes, struggle with same sex attraction. So what happened? I had, you know, dated a girl for about eight or nine months um, because it was kind of forced upon me. Um, How so? While How I, did they force a girl upon you? It was so interesting. So I was, what, 22, 23 years old, something like that. And I was having one of my devotionals with the senior pastor at the time. And, and the, actually, this was the beginning of my time as a pastor. He was discipling me. And this position was new and it was really my time to shine. And he's like, hey, bro, I want to turn to a personal uh, inquiry. He's like, how's your dating life going? And I was just like, um, I haven't really thought about that. And I was deathly afraid because like, you know, I'd been praying the gay away. I kept it. I kept a safe difference, uh, a, a distance away from women per their request. Um, and Wait, yet that you wasn't had stayed an... away from women per church's request. So there were clear guidelines that they saw, you know, for men and women. Like if you weren't dating, then there were very strict rules about who you could hang out with, how, when you can hang out with them. If you were dating, then there were also rules as far as like, you know, you can't be in the same room together past nine o'clock or, you know, there were just these, these really stupid, just, um, off the wall rules. And so, um, in the midst of all that, I had become friends with this girl because, Prior to that, there I, I was friends with another girl who the church was concerned because we were so close. She actually was the one that I first ever came out to in college, and she went to, with me to these Exodus ministries and all that. And the church leadership slowly but surely put a division between us because they're like, well, you guys hang out all the time. Everyone in the church thinks you're in a romantic relationship. And, we're, and I was like, no, absolutely not. I don't want to pursue her. In, you know, So they asked me to separate myself. So that relationship ended up dissolving. And then I ended up uh, making friends with this other girl who, who was being uh, mentored by the senior pastor's wife at the time. And so when he brought that up, he's like, you know, how's your dating life going? I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, pouring my heart into the ministry and da da da. And he's like, well, <clears throat> you know, I need to bring something up. You know, this girl uh, is being discipled by my wife. Um, she clearly has feelings for you. 
Um, I, I don't want you to lead her astray. If you don't have any intentions of dating her, um, I'm going to ask you to, you know, go to prayer about it. But then also, you know, if you, if the Lord shows that you're not meant to be together, then you need to distance yourself from that friendship and, and put clearer boundaries up. And so I ended up having a conversation with her like a couple days after that. And she, she, you know, we were both devastated, but we all knew what, what we were working with. And, um, then a week later he ended up asking me about it. And I was like, you know what, we decided we're going to put some distance between us, blah, 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 all that. He's like, he's like, okay, well, you know, have you thought about my inquiry? And I was like, well, what do you mean? I, you know, I, I did what you asked me to do. He's like, well, your dating life. And I was like, oh, I, you know, again, I'm like pursuing, you know, I'm really pouring my heart and soul into this. I can't imagine being with a woman. And he's like, well, I got to be honest with you. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're a leader um, in the church and you're single and you struggle with same sex attraction. It's not really a good, like in so many ways, he said, it's not a good look to be a struggling homosexual and not be with a woman at this point in my life at age 22. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Look fair enough. Uh, yeah. Right. Like it's so every excuse I tried to come up with, like, I was like, uh, you know, he kept shooting it down and he's like, well, let's go down this list of, uh, available women oh my in the church. God. Look at this menu. No sir. Literal. <laughs> pick, pick your, your appetizer, you know, this like, comely lass of virtue. True. <laughs> you're absolutely right and that was like that but that's the thing like and i think that's what people don't understand is that like you know like from the outside now looking at it it's batshit fucking crazy like it's like whoa but the more that that and i and i think this is true with any type of religion or system of control where the more they chip away your identity when they isolated me from my original friend when they told me i had to abstain from any type of homosexuality any all all, everything all the little rules that added up it literally fostered the the environment it cultivated the land for me to be okay and accepting that 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 oh yeah this is normal like right i need to start being pimped out as some sort of bachelor in this church (laughs) so yeah we went down the list i was making every excuse we finally landed on one and this poor girl her name's sarah in the book and from the get-go, I literally was just like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like he he like he had to teach me how to court her. He had to teach me, you know, like what was the appropriate time for courting and then when to, to commit. So about, you know, a month after courting her, we ended up dating and every alarm in my body went off. Like it was just like, what are you doing? And I would have these weekly meetings with the senior pastor. And they got shorter and shorter because he was starting to get annoyed because I would go to him for everything. I mean, I have emails of me like writing him like, I don't know what to do in this situation. Can you tell me? Da, da, da. And I was like, well, I need to tell her about my struggle with same-sex attraction. And so two weeks after dating her, I ended up telling her, he's like, well, you're Abraham in this. You know, God is testing you. You're Jacob. You know, you're going to the top of the mountain and God is at the last minute going to say you've been faithful, you know, and that's literally how i was like in this relationship for eight months where it was just he would always ask me are you still called to this are you still called to this it was a mind fuck because like i thought i was disobeying god because i had these um, these alarms that were going off in my body and it was because i wasn't trusting god and it was a sign that my homosexuality wasn't cured and it was so many messages coming at me that were just so wrong and my body finally just broke down and then i broke down and ended it uh ending it with her and it was like thousand pound weight had been lifted from my chest i was skipping in the parking lot after i broke up with her it sounds crazy because it is crazy but in the moment it it was what i thought the lord wanted me to do sure when you're carrying all of that and you are a pastor even outside of dating this girl how are you organizing that in your mind so that you can function so that you can go out and do a sermon or you can talk to young people or you're the outreach minister how are you organizing that so that you can just do it knowing that a pastor can't be gay like christians aren't gay but you know, because it's in you. So how are yeah. you organizing this in your mind? It was taught that, oh, homosexuality is just like any other sin, you know, whether it's, you know, you're lusting after a woman or whatever, da, da, da. 
Um, but then on the other hand, homosexuality is the only sin, apparently, that's deplorable. You can go out and be gluttonous um, and it's cute, you know, but if you're out, you know, being a homosexual, you're going to hell. Um, what it was for me in, in compartmentalizing that it was when I went to Exodus and got the language of, right. oh, I'm not gay. I'm not a homosexual. I struggle with same sex attraction. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then that in and of itself was like, okay, so I can differentiate myself from my thoughts by, um, saying that this is just something that I struggle with that may rear its ugly head up but all i have to do is pray mm -hmm. and ask god to take those or flick the rubber band around my wrist and we're good it created this i guess i call it psychological dysmorphia like there were so many different versions of myself uh that i had to maintain to, in order to have this image because on one hand we were told also that homosexuality is the gateway to pedophilia and bestiality and yet here i am in the high school group as a, a leader in the high school group, I had to make sure that I was above reproach more than anybody mm -hmm. there because it was like, if anyone ever identified that you struggle with same-sex attraction, so why are you teaching young boys? Like it, I even remember like being in the church hallways, like during services in the kids ministry and staying away from the kids ministries because so many people knew that I struggled with same-sex attraction and all of them had this perception that it was the gateway to pedophilia. That's an incredibly dehumanizing experience to have. Absolutely. When you're out there, Absolutely. you know, showing up every day, trying to give everything you have to this organization and they're doing this, is that is astonishing. Were you having gay experiences at the time? I went to an adult bookstore uh, once, and then there was, a, there was a time in San Francisco when I turned 21, um, and then I got plugged back into the church. So those were the only two times that I, quote unquote, acted out on my homosexuality. Everything else was pornography. When you say I acting out, like you went to a gay bookstore, but you mean there's like a cruising, there's like a video land or something in the back, right? Exactly, exactly. There was also the guy, Jake, that was my roommate. I guess he was the only one during my church time where we we shared intimacy with each other he was one of my roommates that we would have bro sessions and we would touch each other i would follow his lead because i didn't i was the only one that struggled with same-sex attraction he wasn't he ended up after months of doing this ended up pulling me aside and and apologizing because he didn't take into consideration my struggle with same-sex attraction and basically said he he had been doing this since he was a kid and you know and all like just made excuses for why we couldn't partake in those things anymore. And I think that that incident in and of itself was also a reinforcement for me of like, I cannot pursue this at all. Was he a part of the church? He was. Yeah, he was part of the church. Yeah, we were the same age. Um, he was a leader as well. And he ended up becoming a leader. Yeah, I just found out he never owned up to his sexuality. And I, I don't know whether he was just a horny guy or what the stuff we did was not holy in any way shape or form <laughs> no i think it probably was it probably was the mm. probably to be honest the holiest stuff you did because it was the most honest um yeah i mean I you that. know what i mean i just i it's funny the way people talk about that where it's like it's so dirty and unholy and it's like no it's not that's beautiful. Um, I love that. You're absolutely right. Was so it, uh, you, you're the cool young pastor who's doing mm -hmm. really well, and they're like getting behind you. So you're obviously nailing it in a lot of ways while you struggle with this. What are you doing well at? How are you killing it? I'm very much like a go-getter in that regard. I think a lot of it is my brain works on a whole different frequency than a lot of other people in the sense that I could multitask with, you know, doing different things. But a lot of the reason is because I am just avoidant of dealing with my emotions. The position in and of itself had never been in existence. And so I saw that as a challenge where I was like, I'm going to prove to you my worth by showing you I could do this. I created an elderly ministry. I created a farmer's market outreach. I was doing videos. I would interview people on the streets and ask them what they thought about Jesus and do these promotional videos. I did a whole week for Easter, a whole week for Christmas. It was almost like this, look at me, look, I'm worthy. I can do this. Mostly it was just like, if I can distract you by doing all this over here, I don't have to worry you with all these other things that I'm dealing with that I'm actually 
I remember going to the gym like during my lunch breaks and there was this really hot trainer there and just having to hold back a lot because I was like, well, he knows I'm a pastor at the church right around the corner and blah, 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 and all that. I think I just filled my time and my thoughts with proving myself by doing these things so I wouldn't have to be on the chopping block for stumbling and falling away. What made you decide to leave being a pastor and how did it play out? That happened over the course of nine months. Um, after the whole Sarah debacle with that, the girl that I dated, there was definitely a target on my back, and it was from the assistant pastor. We didn't like each other from the get-go. We tolerated each other. He always prided himself in being a people hater, as he would put it, it which is so weird. He considered himself socially awkward because he was very awkward, I believe. He really felt it his need to protect the women in the church. And so... Um, he ended up turning on me after I had, you know, led Sarah astray and broken up with her. Uh, he ended up starting to get the ear of the pastor more. And so they started questioning my doctrinal beliefs. They started questioning what I was doing with my free time, who I was hanging out with. After the whole Sarah thing debacle, there was really lines drawn in the sand. And there were very few people that had my side of the story. So I went to the senior pastor. I was like, look, like I'm feeling really alone and isolated. I, I think I need to be around people that are my age and understand me and stuff. And so I asked if I can go to our sister church's college group in the neighboring town. And he said, absolutely no, um, because he didn't want me to get snatched up. So I became more isolated over that course. I posted a sermon from my old pastor uh, from high school on my Facebook he ended up like texting me. He's like, hey, bro, I saw you posted this. Just so you know, they're Calvinists, we're Arminianists. You know, it was stupid. It was just semantics. And he asked me to take it down. So I did. Well, it kept happening to the point where I, I started to test my monitoring. And I found a verse in James chapter four where the Calvinists find their doctrinal beliefs from, or it's the foundation of their doctrinal beliefs. All I did was posted the verse. That's all I did. Within seconds, he called me. He's like, hey, bro, I saw you posted this. You need to take it down because it's associate. It's the foundation for Calvinism. It got more and more like as he started to monitor. So I became incrementally disenchanted by the whole experience. And then uh, the ending started with Bible college. I was no longer interested in being taught by the person that I despise the most. And, and I clothed that is, oh, I want to get an accredited degree. It wasn't an accredited degree. And the senior pastor was fighting me on it, but knew it was the last straw for me. So he caved in. The only agreement was that I would run it by him before I actually move forward with it. And I, I did an extensive search, like every single one I gave him, I was like, I, uh, you know, let's do, nope, they're too, they're too liberal. Nope, they're too this, they're too that, whatever. Finally landed on Liberty University. And I pulled up their doctrinal statement and everything. I was like, look, they are 100% aligned with our church and our doctrinal beliefs. It's all online. So I could do it, you know, remotely. So you don't, you won't lose me. Da da da. He was fine with it. The next day I got an email from him and I actually put it in the book. Um, he's like, Hey bro, just want to give you a heads up about, you know, did some research, just, you know, Jerry Falwell, blah, 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 all this. And I lost my shit. That was like the breaking point for me where I saw the email. I called the church office. I said, your office, 15 minutes. I stormed into the office and I just went down the list of all the things that he had done to me, that he said he cared about me. He didn't like if he truly did care about me, he would have known that I've been looking at gay porn for the last four years, um, telling about how you know he monitored me, all of that. And he literally was just stone faced. Wait, you told even, him that. If he cared about you, he would have known that you were looking at gay porn for four years. Wait, sorry. Yeah, how does exactly. how, how would he have how would he have known that? So he was my dis discipler, and so he would always check in with me, and he would sit there with me, and I would confess my sins or whatever. I never shared that with him because I never felt comfortable. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Him. So it was kind of my way of being like, look, like if you really cared about me, you would have really known what was happening. And this is what was happening. Yeah. And he just sat there like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to leave. And he's like, well, when do you want your last day to be? This was like a Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. I was like, this Sunday. And he approved it. And then I went back home, packed up, ended up, wasn't sure where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And ended up moving back home to Santa Barbara. Did you get any kind of reaction? Was anybody like, wait, what? Why are you leaving? How did the church take it? 
I remember the assistant pastor just be like, hey, bye, bro. I was like, yeah, fuck you. A few that were left in my corner were devastated. I, they were shocked. The kids were shocked. I remember after my meeting, walking out into the administration building, everybody was looking at me. Clearly, they could hear. And I didn't care. I just walked past them. I went to my back office. I packed up my shit. And I went back to my home and started packing up my other shit. We only communicated through email after that. The pastor asked me to do a letter for the kids. To be honest, I didn't fully process leaving was actually going to be leaving those kids. Like those, those kids were literally my life there. There was nothing more liberating and fun and just seeing kids just being themselves, even though they were inside of this church that was extremely oppressive and their parents were a part of it as well. I discipled two kids and they were just cool kids. They were very much like a breath of fresh air for me in a very stale environment. And so that was the hardest, I think. Like he, the pastor actually asked me to write a script beforehand before saying, because he didn't want me to go off into the, on the rails and cause a division in the church and shit. I obliged and I went off a little bit, but it was just expressing my love. And some of the kids cried because it, it was a very emotional, very... A shocking thing. Did you ever have any kids that you knew were going to be, knew were queer and that you were like, you could see, or did anybody come to you who was a kid that was like, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. Can you help me? Not with that specifically. I had kids that were, that struggled with the idea of God. Um, like one of the kids I discipled was having sex with his girlfriend and that was a whole thing. And, and he didn't have a father. And so I was kind of like his father figure. And so I had to find this fine line of obeying the Lord, but then also being empathetic and compassionate to this kid. And he was devastated. And I tried to reach out to him after. And it just, it, every man in his life had had left him, and including me. And that, that was really hard. I even talking about it now, I think this is the first time I've ever talked about it publicly. Like it was such a, a devastating thing for me because I was like, I was a father figure to this guy and, and you, you knew he thought I was going to situation was and you're like, oh yeah. God, I'm just repeating this. And it's, it's unlucky. Exactly. It's an unlucky situation. Really. It's not something you would have Ex done to him anyway. But... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I couldn't share with him what was actually going on, you know, like that would have been, a, I think a betrayal as well, because it would have just been like, you know, it, it just was, it was just weird. There's so many emotions there. Yeah, that I, I guess I haven't yet unpacked. <laughs> you go home and live with your dad. What's your communication with him like about what's going on? How much does he know at this point? Going back to like his emotional ineptness, he would avoid anything. I just told him, look, you know, things didn't work out. I'm coming back home to figure out my life. He's like, it's so good to have you, Georgie. Da, da, da. And I was like, yeah, it was a really, really difficult time. And he said, I don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear what you went through. Recently, I was like, I'd love to give you a book if you want to. But I know, knowing you, I don't know if it's something that you want to read. And he's like, I don't want to read it. He's like, I, do, I just don't want to hear what you went through. He was concerned, but he never asked nor knew, wanted to know and I just told him, you know, I was going to go back to school, ended up going back, getting an accounting degree. I plugged back into the church of my youth, which was a lot healthier. It was the, the more liberal place to go. It was liberal compared to where I sure. went, but it, but you know, they still didn't believe in homosexuality. You know, it was still very, but people were authentic. People were real. Actually, I was just partying with one of my friends last night who was visiting. She's Christian still goes to that church and stuff. And they're just a lot more open-hearted and more, more tangible and vulnerable. It still didn't jive with me. And it got to a point where my sexuality was still a pinpoint. It was a sensitive subject to bring up. And it was just like a sequence of events that transpired where I started to explore my sexuality by first diving into the Bible, revisiting some verses, hearing a couple of sermons about it and being like, oh, I and all these other people have been wrong about the interpretation of homosexuality for so long, which you know, a prospect like that, given a few years before that, would have been absolutely asinine and terrifying. It just it started to open me up to, oh, wait a second, maybe me being gay isn't a bad thing. <laughs> so like you came back home and you like decompress. Does that mark the end of this long campaign of conservative religion and conservative politics 
for you? Does that mark the beginning of the end or is that the end of it? What are the implications there with your relationship with your father? I had thrown myself back into the church of my youth, but with a lot more skepticism. Uh, I tried to climb up the ladder and and just was disheartened by it because I was just like, I just, I don't want to start again. I didn't feel like my heart was in it for the Lord anymore. I was going through the motions. I met amazing people that are still my good friends and stuff. But the zeal, I think, was lost on me because it was like I had just gone through a really painful breakup with the last church that I was at. And it brought a lot more skepticism, a lot more critique. I would hear people like my roommates, for instance, they would talk about how good the Lord was and all of that. And it didn't resonate with me. And so about a couple of years of doing that, that's when I started my exploration of self and ended up pursuing accounting after taking a Liberty University class and failing a paper because I had come up with a biblical explanation of why women can be deacons in the church. And yet Liberty said it defied their doctrinal beliefs and they used the same exact Bible verses that I used yeah. to contradict me. Right. And I was like, this is bullshit. Yeah. This is all bullshit. Yeah. And in the midst of that with my dad, it's interesting because like we like he was happy that I was going back to school to get my accounting degree. I think when I told him I was getting a biblical studies degree and thought that he was concerned, but he was like, okay, well, if this is what you want to do, he was happy for me in the sense that like, like I was now back on the right track for success in a sense, you know, even though he was a Christian at that time and still is, it's the old world view. Like it, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't, I honestly, it's hard. It's hard to explain that because as I started to become more liberal and outspoken, I mean, that, put a, a divide between us definitely um but it still was just like business as normal with him i think about it actually with a cs cs lewis quote where he talks about you know to love is to be vulnerable and like you know don't give your heart away not even to an animal all you know that it's like one of my favorite verses one of my favorite quotes <laughs> i think that's where i see him he has a perception and an ability to show love to a certain extent but but to the degree that I require that intimacy, he's not able to go there. And so in a sense, I have to step down and meet him at his frequency, at his level in that even though I want him to meet me all the way up here at the top, I have to go and meet him where he's comfortable and capable of meeting me. So that unfortunately means sacrifice, which means that He'll never know about my personal life. He'll never know about, you know, what happened in the church. He'll never know about who I'm dating. He'll never know, you know, because that's what he has chosen. And I've had to accept that. At first, I resented it. And then obviously, Republicanism kind of bridged that for me. But as I started to get older and realized that, that there was never going to be what I want, a type of relationship that I wanted, um, I had to accept that. And I think that was actually part of my acceptance process too. And being like, well, wait a second, you know, I've been doing all these things to please my dad, being getting an accounting degree. Not that I didn't do it because I did go get an accounting degree, not being gay, you know, all these different things that I pursued thinking that they would bring me in some sort of relationship with my father where was not the case. Do you think he was a parent when you think back? Was there a point where he was a parent and then he stopped being a parent for you? I think he was a parent to the best of his abilities. Okay. To me, it wasn't what I needed. What I needed was more emotional intimacy and he was not willing or able. I think able is a better than willing. I think he wanted to. Um, I just don't think that he was able to in his lack of ability to heal from his traumas. You don't seem particularly mad about it. You're not, you don't, you don't see, I mean, unless you're like not letting that out. Like, I mean, are you disappointed? I was for the longest time. Honestly, like I remember therapy just being like, why the fuck does he just not, you know, open up, you know, I can't call him to feel or be any, any other way than what he's willing to be or feel. I guess it depends on the day, to be honest. It depends. Today, I'm feeling good about myself. Yeah. And there's days where like, I'll be on the phone with him and I just, I'm done with this like repetitiveness. Mm -hmm. I think it's been a process of letting go of that desire to, to want that and then finding that in other things, like with other friends. Right. Do you remember as a kid, did you feel like, 
wholeheartedly this is did you look up and go that is my dad did you feel an all-encompassing fatherness about him at a certain age in certain aspects in certain respects because like his emotional ineptness did not prevent him from physically being there he provided for us financially but he showed up to all of our events he would be there for student teacher meetings he would be there for open house he was a very active father in that regard he could teach a master class on how to physically provide for your family i think mostly what i've talked about is the emotional stuff because that's what ultimately drove me into these different directions but in the physical realm absolutely like he was one of the best and still is one of the best and most kind-hearted and most giving human beings to ever live and i say that more than jesus sure (laughs) (laughs) well done how do you think your relationship with your father influences your um relationships today i mean Hmm. intimate relationships boyfriends people you're dating i struggle with emotional intimacy the last serious relationship i had i wrote about it um his name's sean in the book It was like three or four years ago. I haven't really been in a serious relationship since. But I started to see the unhealthy lessons that that were propagated in my childhood. I was physically providing for this person. But whenever it came to emotional stuff, I kept him at bay. I envy and I still do envy those people who come from, you know, homes where their mother or father is on speed dial. And, you know, they talk about, you know, can you believe what happened to me? I'm not blind to the fact that my relationship with my parents has had a significant impact on how I treat relationships today. But I think knowing that and then but also working on it by going to therapy, dealing with those things and being at peace. I guess it's like the serenity prayer, you know, it's like help me to be I can't even repeat it. But yeah, you know, it's like, you know, help me to be okay with, you know, and I think that's honestly what it is. It's just I as I grow and as I evolve, I have more grace for those people in my life i think that's what it comes down to it's having empathy and seeing it from their perspective like if i was in my dad's shoes i could understand why but it's a it's an ongoing again it goes back to you know it depends on the day depends on you know like you caught me on an upswing (laughs) because you end up i mean it's not even hard to look at um like just from the outside right so a man of his generation how old is he God, uh, 80, 81. Okay, so he's 81. He's Middle Eastern. How long did he live in the United States? Was he born here? His okay. whole life. So he, yeah, born and raised. Uh, but he's, so his like okay. family, where did they come from? Both his parents are Lebanese immigrants. Okay. They were born and raised in Lebanon and came here during the Great Depression. Okay. I mean, his mom was abandoned in Lebanon when she was 12 years old with two of her sisters, and one of them died on her watch during the Great Depression. So that cultural background, you know, plus masculinity in America, plus Mm -hmm. not even speaking about what may or may not have happened to him as a child. I mean, it's already the groundwork is there for someone to just be kind of this stoic Mm -hmm man who provides and then that's sort of their job you know and any kind of complexity gets in the way of doing their job so it's a huge Mm -hmm. cultural movement that we try and examine on this podcast it's not even just that you're dealing with like men that can be tyrannical and incredibly rigid and refuse to acknowledge their own Mm -hmm. anxiety and then just heap it on other people behave badly and are allowed to get away with all these things it's also really bad for them because they grow up mm-hmm. in this situation. And yeah, they have all this privilege and access. He's not a white man, so that's that's not the kind of privilege I'm talking about. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's not good for people to be taught that emotions are bad or that their job is to be a functioning right. provider or that they should stay disconnected from their children or that they have to be mean to make their kids tough. Like... These are not healthy right. things for them either. Plus, like these large cultural yeah. events, the depression, just living through the depression would have been enough. Right. World War II. Like, you still yeah. like have people who are, I mean, Holocaust survivors. I mean, people who lived during the war where they just can't throw things away. Stuff like that, where the trauma just like resonates, like a rock hits a pool 
and the ripples just keep going and going and going. Yeah. Yes. And there's a biological justification for that as well. Generational trauma is a very, it's a scientifically proven yeah. thing. Depravity mindset, poverty mindset, all of that. Absolutely. Yes. I, but you look at the the boomer movement and, and a lot of it propagated by the Reagan era, you know, selfishness movement, really. Like it, it was all about not having consciousness for how we have an impact on the earth and all of that. But you're absolutely right as far as like privilege. Like there, were, there were resources that were available to them that are no longer available today. It's more than just this one thing. I think the issue that I have with social media lately is just that Everything is so black and white. And it's like, no, nothing is black and white. I mean, maybe the only thing that's black and white is that Trump's a narcissist. These are the things we know for sure. Trump is a narcissist. So mm -hmm. speaking of Trump, is your dad still a Republican? I made a hard stance when Trump was there and I knew my dad was going to vote for him for the first round. We made it very clear that politics is not our thing. Being a CPA and doing taxes, talking about the tax law and all of that. My understanding is my dad stopped listening to Fox News about a year okay. ago uh, because it was like it was just getting too much. And I'm like, yeah. And we had a frank conversation about Tucker Carlson and all that. Whether he's gone back to that or not, I have my suspicions because of the way he'll be like, be very careful, Georgie. And I know what that means. He's hearing that, you know, MS-13 is all over L.A. When I go home, I see that he listens to the Christian Satellite Network. And I know that they are transphobic, homophobic you know, the, the <laughs> people phobic. And so I guess my concern more so, I guess, with him and then, but also with people that do listen to conservative media in general, they're not covering that. Like NPR came out with that headline today, but you know, what is sure. Fox my question really is, you said that he turned away from Tucker Carlson. Do you know what it was about? What did Tucker Carlson say? Do you know that made him, what was the actual there, argument? Anything or theme even it was it was about sensationalism because i even told him i was like look i don't even listen to cnn anymore and not to say that they're an equivalent of fox news but the way that news dissipates now it's very much about catching your attention and so i think he started to pick up on that on the fox side where everything was breaking news a couple months ago we were talking about the inflation reduction act and he knew nothing about it what he did know about it was that it was passed by biden so then i started to fill him in on that and so he has these moments, I guess, like when I led him to Christ, it's <laughs> leading him to truth. We talked about some of the propositions here in California. There was one proposition about dialysis. My mom went through dialysis. Right, yeah. He was believing the ads, which were saying, you know, vote no. All dialysis centers are going to leave California. And I just explained it to him. I was like, no, that's a scare tactic. We've had those kinds of moments of interactions, but nothing blatant like are you voting for Trump this year? What do you think about the insurrection? We don't have those conversations because it's now just become a place of avoidance for him. It's always interesting to me to find out how people continue civility with relatives mm -hmm. like this. Because you can sit down and go, oh, let's agree to disagree, which is a statement designed to just avoid or you can say, oh, we, you know, we just don't agree on certain things. I personally just don't know how to let it go completely when it comes down to votes, when it comes down to votes, not yeah. when it comes to vicarious redemption. Okay, go believe whatever you want. But when it comes down to, oh, the church tells me I need to vote to make sure that abortion is kept illegal, that trans people are dehumanized further, that gay people are pariahs, mm -hmm. that people of color are to blame for our own failure and resentment. All of these ludicrous things where people are scapegoated and it's yeah. like when you go in and cast the vote, it becomes an immovable issue for me. And I don't know how yeah. to figure that out. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've gone all the way from cutting those people out to, you know, to the current status of my father. I was thinking about one of my best friends who is becoming more conservative, not in the extremist type of way, but more conservative. And he tells me about the people that have defriended him. He tells me about the people who blocked him from his phone because he shared an idea that was different than what what that group is. We have lost the ability to be able to have constructive conversations with each other. These people, at the end of the day, wants what's best for in in their view of what is best 
and they have been told that this is the way to achieve it. And if I can have frank conversations, you know, like like when I talk about taxes with my dad or my friend or or whatever, like like I remember my friend, we recently were talking about something and he and he said, he's like, thank you. You gave me a different perspective. I didn't even think about it from that perspective. And I think that's what we're lacking in modern day society is that we don't have we don't have those people in our lives that are challenging us to think differently we're being forced to choose a camp and and plant our roots in it and cut everybody else out. I think we need to realize that like life isn't like that. You know, and and in social in social media in the way that news is portrayed and all of that it is. But that's not life. That's not real. Like so I think it's 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 being more discerning. I think that's what it comes down to is being discerning. So how often do you speak with him? We talk every day actually. At the end of my day, and we just talk about the weather, we talk about my business, we talk, you know, I talked to him about the book. He doesn't know I'm doing podcasts. He knew I did an, a news interview, but I didn't share it with him because I, when I do talk about the family, I just try to keep it away from him because I know he worries about the smallest things. I guess we found our rhythm. Does your dad still go to church? So he, his form of church is studying the Bible himself, listening to the Christian Satellite Network. Um, you know, in, in what I, what I understand, yes, he still does do those mm -hmm. things. And then, and so this is not something you discuss with him. No, it, it was, it was funny. Cause I was like driving his car the last time I was up there and I, you know, turned it on and he was listening to the Christian satellite network and I'm like, Oh God. <laughs> it's like God, God love so, him. But, <laughs> I mean, it's like he integrated it into his life in a way that does resonate for him. Was he disappointed that you moved away from it? we were talking about it a couple of years ago and he he made a comment he was like you know just as long as you believe he's like you know it's not about religion it's about a relationship with jesus you know and 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 i was just like you know what like he means that in the most genuine way like whenever somebody tells me that it's usually a trigger warning because it's like oh you're trying to get me to go to your church and find my relationship through your pastor you know like he genuinely means it because that's what he's been taught but it's also what he believes I interpreted that more as endearing than I did triggering because it was like, oh, like you, you care about me like you, you know, like um, not that I believe it and not that I would ever go back to that again. But um, in his way, he's found his own language in it. He's not saying, listen, I'll pray for you. Like, I know that you're a, one of the queers, but I'll pray for you. Yeah exactly never judges me like only wants the best yeah. for me and i and i know that i like i know that in his way i know that this podcast was created and produced by aaron hosier elizabeth thompson and matthew felt you can always listen for free on apple podcasts spotify iHeartRadio, google and anywhere you get your shows Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And if you can, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It's just a little thing you can do, and it makes such a difference for us to get the word out about our show. Thanks for listening.